You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled, Redemption Accomplished. Good evening, friends, and welcome to week nine. Can you believe we only have one more week left? It's gone so fast. (laughs) And slow for me at the same time, I'm not sure. Uh, But way to hang in there. I'm so glad to see you all here. Um, We're going to finish strong. There's so much good stuff here in these last two weeks. So tonight we finally crack open the New Testament. The end of the Old Testament left us hanging. So the return to Jerusalem was not the promised restoration that the prophets had foretold. And if that wasn't it, now what? The weight of the curse is still heavy upon their shoulders. There is no remedy for sin. How will God ever be able to dwell among his people in kingdom? And right on the heels of this lackluster return, God goes silent. Those couple of pages in your Bible between the Old and New Testament account for 400 years. 400 years when no one heard from God. Generations came and went, empires rose and fell. Think of how hard it would be to cling to the promises of God with so little to show for it. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God sent a famine of his words so that his people would be hungry for the word. And God's silence was broken one day when an angel appeared to a priest named Zechariah. And the name Zechariah, you look this up, means God remembers. And this miracle baby that was promised to him was to be named John, which means God is gracious. God had not forgotten his people or his promises. The angel Gabriel then appears to Mary a young virgin who had found favor with God, God chose her to carry the incarnate Son of God in her womb. She was to name him Jesus, which means God saves. Do you see that progression? God remembers, God is gracious, and God saves. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. For to us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. From this time forth and forevermore, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The fullness of time had come. God was sending his own son, the one that we've been waiting for all this time. He would be the eternal king on David's throne. He would be that true and better prophet, the ultimate word of God. He would uphold and fulfill the law of Moses. He would be the true and better priest mediating between a sinful people and a holy God. He would be the final sacrifice satisfying the wrath of God. He would be the blessing for all the peoples of the earth as promised to Abraham. And he would be the snake crusher promised to Eve. 
that would reclaim us from the enemy. Every promise of God finds its yes in him. This was the promised deliverer, the consolation of Israel and the hope of the whole world. In our grand gospel story, Jesus Christ is the climax. His work of redemption is the hinge on which the entire biblical narrative pivots. You have felt that tension build as we've spent weeks staring down the hopelessness of sin. But God, right? In Christ, the trajectory of the narrative is flipped on its head. He will make all the sad things come untrue. The climax allows for the resolution to come. It is only through the redemption of Christ that we have any hope of glorification. So what is this work of redemption? Let's start with a definition. To redeem means to recover by payment, to buy back. So it's a little more than just saving someone, as if you're reaching out a hand to someone who's drowning. But instead, it insinuates a cost. One of my favorite examples from scripture is the story of Hosea the prophet. Do you know this one? God tells Hosea that he is going to be a prophet of his. He's going to declare his message to the people. And oh, by the way, I'm going to make your life into a parable. So he tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And he says, go and covenant yourself to her. Settle down, start a family. And so Hosea obeys. But lo and behold, his wife runs off to her former way of life. And God says to Hosea, go and buy her back and love her again. And so he does. Hosea purchases his wife out of prostitution again. And he brings her home. To hear the faithfulness of God toward his own. He is willing to incur a cost a great cost to redeem his adulterous bride. This is redemption. So on to Christ's redeeming work. In your homework, I had you look at four steps of his work or earthly ministry, as we sometimes call it. So we have his incarnation, followed by his death, the resurrection, and the ascension. How did it go trying to boil those concepts down to simple language? I know it's a little tricky, but that really shows you if you understand something. When you have to think, how would I explain this to a kid? We're going to unpack each one of these and see how they fit together. So we're going to start off with something easy, okay? We're just going to ease into it. We're going to start with the incarnation, okay? It's like the most, one of the most complex concepts in all of Scripture, so it breaks my brain, but man, does it also fill me with wonder. So in preparing for this lesson, I came across this quote from theologian and professor Wayne Grudem. And he says, the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and even more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man 
will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. I mean, can I get an amen? (laughs) We're not going for complete understanding on this. This is beyond us. But in all that we don't know, what is it that we do know? We know from scripture that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He took on human form and nature, did not hang up his divinity, but he added human form and nature, and he came and dwelt among us. He is fully God and fully man. Now that probably isn't new to most of you, but don't you have a million questions of how that worked? I know I do, and the Bible is not super concerned with answering all of them. (laughs) The incarnation is one of those subjects where we have to settle in to biblical tension. Historically, people have come up with all kinds of theories to ease this tension because we don't like not being able to figure something out. But remember when we studied the attributes of God? He's knowable, but yet he's still incomprehensible. To understand him fully would then, we'd have the ability to master him. And who wants to serve a God that can be mastered by a human? So we think and study and marvel. And ultimately we bend the knee as creature before our creator. What I'm going to do tonight is offer you some orthodoxy. Beliefs that the church has derived from scripture and has held to since its earliest beginnings. Pastor J.T. English says, heresy seeks to resolve the tension that orthodoxy demands. So we're going to faithfully and humbly walk through this theology. This is what we do know. Jesus being fully God and fully man means that he has two coexistent natures, but is one being. When we talk about this joining of divinity and humanity, there are four descriptions that we want to make sure we get right. The first one is that these natures are without confusion. They're not muddled. They're two distinct natures, each having their own set of characteristics and functions. Secondly, these natures are without change. From the very beginning of his earthly life, both of these natures were complete and intact. They didn't evolve over his lifespan. He was divine and he was human from his first cry. Third, these natures are without division. So we could very well try to reason, well, he was 50% God and 50% man, because that does equal 100% after all. But the scripture tells us he was fully God and fully man. Each nature was present in fullness. And lastly, these natures are without separation. This is really important as it denounces the heresy that he can switch in and out of his divinity and his humanity. It's not like a hat that he puts on and off. Both natures are coexistent at all times. Now, I know what you may be thinking. There are some stories in the Gospels where certain characteristics of one of those natures is really highlighted. But that doesn't mean the other nature isn't still present. I realize it's crazy 
to think about how he could maintain his divinity while taking on the limitations of a human. But alas, we have reached the end of our capacity. (laughs) This intersection of humanity and divinity will always hold mystery, but let it drive you to worship instead of unbelief. So why was the incarnation necessary? Why did the Son of God need to take on human form and nature to redeem God's people? I thought about how to articulate this for a while, and it ended up in a catechism that we've used with our kids. So we're just going to let that be our guide for tonight. And by the way, I'm going to include these question and answer slides in the email, so don't stress out about frantically writing everything down, okay? All right. So to start us off, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. Adam's race needed a true and better representative. One who would keep the covenant on our behalf. This is the point we often skip over in our rush to get to the cross. We need his life of perfect obedience just as much as we need his death and resurrection. He didn't just toss out that old covenant through Moses. He kept the law, every letter of it, so that it was fulfilled. It needed to be fulfilled, not discarded, so that that chapter could be closed and a new covenant initiated in his blood. This perfect obedience was also necessary so he could be the unblemished sacrifice for our sins. But we'll talk about that more in a bit. The second question then is, well, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and his suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. In short, no human being born of Adam could accomplish what was necessary for redemption. And so God gave of himself. Let's move on to his death. This subject feels a bit more logical to us. The wages of sin is death, right? And the sin required a blood sacrifice. In order for us not to die, and to be eternally separated from God's favor, there must be a substitute. We talked about atonement earlier in this study. Remember, this means to make amends or to give satisfaction for a wrong. So putting these concepts together, we get the term substitutionary atonement, simply meaning that there's a substitute that's making the atonement instead of us. God had conditioned his people to understand this long before Jesus through the sacrificial system. They were to lay their hand on the head of the animal being sacrificed to show their identification with that death. This life in place of mine. But all of that Old Testament provision was temporary. Hebrews tells us the blood of lambs and goats can never take away sin. A true and better sacrifice was required. So Jesus offers himself as that final substitutionary atonement. He not only represented us in his perfect life, but in his death. 
the New Testament introduces a word that is closely related to atonement. It's the word propitiation. Big word bonus, I know. Most translations just choose to drop it, and they translate that Greek word atonement, which is fine, but I'm a word nerd, remember, so I want to tell you the rest of the story. I like this word a lot because it carries more of a weight than just atonement. Propitiation means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Imagine that the wrath of God is poured out on us like a bucket of water. Just envision maybe one of those giant buckets at a water park. The sacrifice of God, of Christ rather, is not like an umbrella that we're standing under that that's only going to deflect the water, deflect the wrath of God. The Old Testament sacrifices were kind of like that. They were a temporary covering to deflect God's wrath, but there were still puddles at their feet. But instead, the sacrifice of Christ is like a massive sponge that's held over us. And so when God pours out his wrath on sin... Christ absorbs it all. And his work is so complete that not even one drop can get down through to us. What grace and what mercy. So why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. But of course, the next step is the resurrection. Again, some simple logic. Sin required the payment of lifeblood. And if Jesus had remained dead, then death would have had the victory. But death itself needed to be defeated. You wonder why death hurts so much? It's because we were not made for it. It stands as the ultimate reminder of the curse of sin. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of death as the last enemy. Isn't it crazy that God chose to defeat death by allowing Jesus to die? It seems like opposite logic, right? A victor who is killed? Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death no longer has the final word. So what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. And lastly, we come to the ascension. When his work on earth is done, Christ returned to his heavenly home and was seated 
is still now seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of highest honor. And don't miss this, he's seated because his work is finished. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says, And every priest stands daily in the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? Christ physically ascended on our behalf, just as he came down to earth physically on our account. And he is now advocating for us in the presence of the Father, preparing a place for us, and also sends his spirit. So we can see all that Christ has accomplished, but the question remains, well, how do we receive this gift of redemption? eternal salvation through him? How do we become recipients of all that he's done on our behalf? And the short answer is to repent and believe. We must admit that we are sinners and that there is nothing we can do to be saved. And we must believe, believe that Jesus Christ is who the scriptures declare him to be, that he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the only way to be reconciled back to God. When we surrender ourselves to him as Savior and Lord, we become a child of God, and his Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. So, I grew up in the church, all right? I professed faith in Christ at eight years old. But it's been only in the last several years that I have come to a deeper and fuller understanding of how salvation actually works. And the best way I can explain it is by example. So that's what we're going to do tonight. I need a volunteer who's feeling brave. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just need one person to be another body on this stage with me. I'm going to point if no one volunteers. (laughs) Brianna, come on up. (laughs) It's okay. You're going to be fine. Okay. I'm also going to awkwardly narrate what's going on so that the audio people can hear or visualize what's happening. Okay, so I want to first show you how I previously understood salvation. So for this analogy, I am going to be God the Father, which sounds extremely heretical, but just (laughs) follow me here, okay? And we're going to put this stool here to my right hand. This is going to represent Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? Holy Spirit is going to be this ball. All right, so we have Brianna here. She has heard the gospel, and she would like to become a child of God. So we're going to walk her through this process of repentance and belief. So, I gotta look at my questions. Do you believe that you are a sinner and separated from a holy God? Yes. Yes. Is there anything you can do to save yourself from God's wrath? No. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in your place so that you can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God? Yes. Yes. And do you surrender to his lordship and trust him to be your Lord and Savior? Yes. Yes. Okay, folks, we have a new believer. We have a child of God. Okay, so this is our point of conversion. 
So I'm gonna put my order of salvation up here on the screen. This is the point, so she came to saving faith, belief and trust, and then this is the point of her justification. She is now righteous before God. This is God's legal declaration that she is righteous because of what Christ has done. She is also positionally holy. That's the other term that we've used for this stage in the process. Now, I'm going to have you stand right here. And I'm going to use this towel to represent the righteousness of Christ. Okay? This is how I always pictured it, right? The righteousness of Christ just covers us and is like the surrounding. So that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. And this is not a bad analogy, but just follow me here. Okay? And then, hey, ready? Catch. You also get the Holy Spirit. Okay. So... She's got everything she needs. She's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. She's been given the Holy Spirit. But now I kind of envisioned like the Father and the Son just kind of like over here and being like, okay, we set you up with everything you need. You're going to do great. You've got Christ's righteousness. You've got the Holy Spirit. We're going to love you no matter what. Grace covers it. And you just go get him, tiger. Okay? This is how I envisioned it. So there are pieces of this that is true, but I want to show you the alternative. Okay, thank you. You may sit down. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Now, what blew open my understanding of salvation is a not-so-little doctrine called union with Christ. And Matt actually talked about this in his sermon on Sunday, if you heard that. So I'm going to show you what this looks like. And we're going to use objects instead of people. And you'll see why in a moment. And caveat, as with any analogy that involves the Trinity, like what just happened here, there's some breakdown, okay? But I think you're going to see it gets the point across. So first we have um, a believer, okay? This is a human. And when the person comes to faith in Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to use these popcorn kernels and dump them into my little bowl. And this is to symbolize being filled with the Spirit. Okay? We're going to put the lid on nice and tight. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Bible speaks of Christ in us, this is what it means. The Spirit is the application of God's presence in our lives. But though the Holy Spirit is in each believer. Who is he still connected to? The Father and the Son, right? So in a sense, you are being brought into this union. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him over 160 times in his letters. It is the primary way that he refers to Christians. He doesn't really use that term. He says, those of you who are in Christ. This is not just metaphorical language or like a cutesy way of saying it. This is a spiritual reality. The Holy Spirit in us is still connected to the Father and Son. You are brought into this union. So the Holy Spirit is in you and you are in Christ. So we're going to put the believer into a larger bowl and put the lid on. And then... Christ is in God. Bigger bowl yet. 
and put the lid on. So now don't analyze all these steps outward. (laughs) But the point being, this verbiage of being in is meant to convey unbreakable union. As a child of God, look what you have been invited into. Look how secure you are. You have been joined to Christ through faith and are being held and kept in him. Your feelings are going to come and go. Your relationship with the Lord will ebb and flow. But this union of being joined to Christ is permanent because he accomplished it, not you. This is the mystery of the gospel that Paul refers to in his letters. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This has been the plan since before the creation of the world. It did not evolve, but rather was slowly revealed throughout the Old Testament. Remember how those kingdom promises of God got just a little bit more specific with each covenant? When Christ finally comes in the flesh, it's like God turned the lights on. What has been shrouded in mystery all of those years is now made known for those who have eyes to see. Look particularly at verses 9 and 10 there. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. The method for this plan of redemption is to be united to Christ. This is how we receive all of the spiritual blessings and benefits of Christ. Again, instead of those benefits just kind of like being tossed to us from afar, they become ours because we are in him. Think of the four steps of Christ's work Incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension. It's common to hear that Christ's perfect life of righteousness has been credited to our account. And that's not wrong. But what that really means is that we receive righteous standing before God because we are in Christ. The scriptures often explain salvation as being a transfer from death to life. And what that really means is that we die to sin and are raised to new life because we are joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. And we may not have physically ascended like Christ did, but because we are in him, there is a sure hope of future inheritance and the power and authority over sin even now. This is what it means that Christ is our representative. In Adam, we receive the sinful nature which is passed down with every human birth. But in Christ, we receive new life, having been born again 
by the Spirit. These spiritual genetics, if you will, are the making of a new humanity. This is the way that God intended it to be from the beginning. Ever since Genesis 3 and the fall into sin, humans cannot will for God, cannot love God, cannot obey God without his intervention. But this new humanity in Christ means that we are again rightly oriented to him. We are joined to him. So we now have the capacity to will for him, to love him, and to obey him. This only grows by the Spirit's power the rest of our lives until we reach eternity. I want you to understand your individual salvation in this light. For me, this was tremendously relieving. I learned that union with Christ had the power to both save and sanctify this wretched sinner. Being in Christ secures my justification, and Christ in me secures my sanctification. Not left to myself, not left to yourself, but bound with unbreakable bonds to the triune God. But remember, this reality in the life of each believer makes up a piece of a much bigger story. What is God after? To fill the earth with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. This can only be accomplished through Christ. His people must be united to him. Remade into new creations, a new humanity, in order to enjoy him, to glorify him, and to carry out his kingdom purposes in the world. Hallelujah, what a savior. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we marvel at your grace. Thank you for your humility, your love, your willingness to condescend, to take on flesh and ransom us. We would be utterly lost were it not for this extension of your mercy. And so we just pause and say thank you. And I just thank you for the glorious mystery of union with you. Our brains may never be able to fully grasp that until we are with you someday. But God, what power to be brought into the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, where true life is found. We thank you for this work of redemption, for your atoning sacrifice, for your resurrection. We just pray that we would live in that power, that we would cooperate with your spirit, God. We want to be done with sin, and we want to be more like you. Just continue to conform us into your image as we prepare to be with you someday in eternity. We love you, and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.